So would you please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It is the one verse we'll be looking at today. And for title's sake, if you were taking notes, our sermon will be titled, What is Jesus Doing Now? What is Jesus Doing Now? Hebrews 7, 25, I'll read the text now. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So reads the word of the living God. Uh, The last year and a half, I would say, for all of us has been a time to remember, right? Uh, Whether it be because of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, far too long of lockdowns, a lot of Zoom, a whole lot of masks, political division for sure, Uh, racial tension has abounded, there's difficulty in the church, obstacles to simply meeting as a church, and those are just wide-scale things. I'm sure if some of you sat down or came up here to share, you could tell of personal struggles, turmoils, tragedies, whether emotionally, spiritually, relationally, or mentally. And I'm also sure that in the last year and a half, a lot of you could highlight triumphs, God's goodness in your life. But the point that I'm getting at is uh, we've all endured times that have just been tough in our world as of recently. Uh, But it's this letter to the Hebrews that in chapter 13, verse 7, says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, regardless of what we go through in the ups and downs. And we have to trust and believe that. And such a time should move us to not only to remember, reflect, and rejoice on why he came, but to consider and ask the question, what is Jesus doing now? Because we serve a risen Savior who is alive at this very moment, and, is, and, and who is our living hope through it all? So I repeat the question, what is Jesus doing now? And in one sense, it's a difficult question to answer. It's, and it's, it has an infinite answer. Jesus is God, is infinite, limitless, all-powerful, and sovereign over everything, the head of the church, and all that he is gloriously. So Jesus is doing a whole lot. But the Bible is clear, one thing that Jesus is doing right now is interceding for his people. In other words, he's petitioning as our own great high priest. Simply put, Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is praying for Christians. He's praying for you and me, my brother or sister in Christ. And we rightly focus on our initial salvation, all that Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross and in his resurrection, such as total forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, and justification by faith. The fact that by grace through faith, God declares us righteous 
in the court of heaven. Jesus bore our sin, took our punishment, and now God grants, imputes, and accredits to us Jesus' perfection and righteousness and holiness. He sees us as he sees his son when we embrace him by faith. It's the good news of justification by faith, what Christ accomplished for us. Yet, we have to acknowledge That the beautiful gospel truth of justification by faith, for example, is linked to what Jesus did in the past. Intercession is what Jesus is doing in the present, and we should think about it a lot more. It's Jesus' moment by moment applying afresh all of his saving work to us with the Father in his intercession. Jesus' intercession is similar to, but so much more than apparent interceding to a teacher for their troubled child in their elementary school class in the parent-teacher meeting. It's similar to, but so much more than a sports agent trying to get their client in the NFL, NBA, or whatever, as much dough as possible. Jesus' intercession at the right hand of the Father is him praying on our behalf. And he prays as our mediator, as our advocate. And he appeals to his righteous life his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, his saving work, not our merits or our accomplishments or the accomplishments of anyone else. And God the Father, who is now God our Father through Christ, gladly agrees with the intercession of Christ. So the truth of the ongoing intercession of Jesus doesn't mean that the Father's heart is reluctant to embrace us. Please don't understand it that way. He's the one who in love gave and sent God the Son to be our Savior and ordained him as our great high priest. And he's overjoyed to say yes to Jesus' appealing on our behalf. So, foundational talk, background. I ask the question again now, what is Jesus doing now? And Hebrews 7.25 beautifully answers that question, along with reminding us why he came. And it's my hope, my brothers and sisters, that your souls would be nourished, that your heart and mind would be comforted, and that you'd be propelled to press on in following Jesus. My central truth for you looking at this text, if you're taking notes, is that Hebrews 7.25 calls Christians to confident assurance because Jesus saves completely and prays constantly for his own. This text calls Christians to confident assurance because Jesus saves completely and prays constantly for his own. We'll look at this one verse in two parts uh, with the first heading being why Jesus came. Why Jesus came. First portion of verse 25. God's word reads, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And we pause there. That first word here in verse 25, consequently, is a loaded one. So far in the book of Hebrews, the author has labored to show that Jesus is superior, to make plain that Jesus is better. In chapter 1, he told us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he sits because his work is finished in terms of accomplishing redemption. Then he goes on to say that Jesus is better than the angels. 
He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron in the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. Jesus is better. And he's the final great high priest. And if you don't know what that means, high priest, great high priest, a priest is a minister who, rep- who represents people before God as a mediator and acted on their behalf in relation to God by animal sacrifices for sin and their intercessory prayers. But Jesus is the better and final high priest because he's given the perfect sacrifice for sin and he'll never die again. So his priesthood on our behalf continues forever in the new and better covenant. Jesus helps us. He's been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he doesn't need rescue. He only provides it. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He deals gently with us. He's better and best and forever alive in all that we need. That's a lot. But I'm trying to summarize for you all that the author has built to with that word, consequently. So verse 25, he says, consequently, it's like him saying, therefore. And he says again, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Hear me here. My dear friends, Jesus is right now and continually, always, unceasingly able to save. If you collegians would allow me a sentence of bad grammar, Jesus is never not able to save sinners. He is able to save. And he's the only one capable, suitable, and sufficient, the only one qualified to do so. You cannot save yourself. Your grandmother's prayers can't save you. The Pope or saints, Buddha, Hinduism, uh, karma, none of that can save you. Only Jesus can do so. He is truly God and therefore the perfect sacrifice. And he's truly man and therefore our perfect substitute. Only Christ can save. But implicitly with the text saying he's able to save to the uttermost, It's not only telling us that Jesus is able to save, but that he's also willing. Jesus is willing and able to save sinners like us. When I was young, about four or five years old, we lived in an apartment complex in Ontario, California, not too far from here. My little sister was about one or two years old. Uh, We were with uh, some of my cousins Uh, they're great. Um, Two sisters, two brothers. So we are a big group of uh, little kids. And in our foolish eagerness, uh, we ran to the pool in front of our moms and just somehow the gate was open. It's not usually open on its own. And going into the pool, uh, I knew that I was going to wait for my mom to get here because I was four. I couldn't swim yet, so I needed my floaties. But my little sister, Perry, who I love dearly, she, out of us two, has always been the one who's way more fearless, uh, way more of a thrill seeker, uh, way more of an adventurer. And we get into the little pool section, and she jumps into the pool, the deep end of the pool. And it was the longest few seconds of my life. I remember just standing still and being terrified and really being paralyzed because I couldn't swim. 
So my little mind is racing, like, it makes no point for me to jump in. Then, then, then there's just two of us, a mess in the pool. And that's harder for anyone to rescue us. So four-year-old Paul is really thinking through it all. And what I see, looking back to that story, is I was willing to help to rescue my sister, but I wasn't able to do so. But in, but in a few seconds, after that little thought processing in my mind, I can never forget a woman jumped in the pool and saved my sister. She seen the, her need, and she was willing and able to save her, and even to her own detriment. She had just had stomach surgery, and it was compromised by her jumping in that pool, but to her own detriment, she was willing and able to save her. And in an infinitely greater way, Jesus seen our need as sinners before a holy God and was willing and able to save and rescue us through living the righteous life that we haven't and dying and receiving the wrath of God against our sins, which we are saved from. Jesus is right now still continually willing and able to save. This is why he came, and it's why we celebrate, Christian. It's why we worship and gather on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. And why, if you haven't, you must repent and believe upon Jesus today. Turn from your sin and any notion that you could save yourself. You can't. Not before a holy God. Your good works, good behavior, GPA are are so not sufficient before him. But Christ, Christ says, come. Christ says, come. And if you turn from sin and believe upon him, trust in him, he will receive you and save you. He's ready to receive and rescue you today. John Owen, a Puritan of old, said, we need to know that Christ is both willing and able to help us and meet all our needs. We may well ask, what will Christ not do for us? He who emptied and humbled himself who came down from the infinite heights of his glory to take our human nature into union with his divine nature, will he not meet all our needs and answer according to his wisdom all our prayers for help? Will he not do all that is necessary for us to be eternally saved? Will he not be a sanctuary for us? Christ is indeed most willing and able to help us and save us. End quote. Jesus is willing to save because he came. And he's able to save because of who he is, the God-man, and what he's done and accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Christ is willing and able to save and help us. That's why he came. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 2, 17, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, the statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our beloved holiday Christmas tells us the only one who was able to save us was willing to do so. So he was born. And so he came. But notice, looking back with me to verse 25, it doesn't stop at save. The text says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. To the uttermost. That's a unique word and phrase 
It's not often used in our time, but it's filled with meaning. Commentators say to the uttermost denotes comprehensiveness, completeness, exhaustive wholeness, but also has reference to time. It's forever to the end. So Jesus is willing and able to save to the uttermost means Jesus saves completely, totally, perfectly, and eternally. Going to college, I played uh, college football at San Diego State, and it was a sport that offered full-ride scholarships, which meant school was completely, 100%, totally paid for, for the whole time, paid for. It's a scholarship to the uttermost, if you will. Uh, But there's other sports that give partial scholarships, meaning they pay for some, but you have to work and figure out the rest, or you're just going to debt. A partial scholarship is not to the uttermost. So hear me, Jesus is a to the uttermost savior. Jesus is the full scholarship savior. The text doesn't say Jesus is able to save for the most part. Then you got to work. Then you have to feel guilty enough or be righteous enough. Go to purgatory to finish off sins that somehow the cross didn't satisfy. You have to clear the rest. No, that's not what God's word says. Jesus is willing and able to save to the uttermost completely, totally, perfectly, and eternally. He's not a partial savior. He is a to the uttermost savior, and he will not lose you, Christian. And you cannot lose him. And this is good news because I am and you are a to the uttermost sinner, completely, totally, by nature and choice, sinful before God. We need a to the uttermost savior, and we have one in Christ who is always willing and able to save. Jesus won't run out of gas as our savior, leaving us stranded on the narrow road. One author says, to the uttermost means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down to the darkest crevices of our souls, the places where we are most ashamed and defeated. Jesus knows us to the uttermost and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn to us to the uttermost, end quote. Understand that Jesus is willing and able to save to the uttermost. But then verse 25 goes on again. It says, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That tells us that Jesus's salvation is not for everyone, but those who recognize their need and sin before God and therefore draw near to God through Jesus. This text is getting at the exclusivity of Jesus. First Timothy 1.5 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus said in John 14.6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. Acts 4, 12, there's only one name under heaven by which we're saved. It's the name of Jesus. Salvation to the uttermost only comes when we draw near to God through Christ. So Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. In view of this truth, I want to lovingly exhort you all to consider Jesus Consider Jesus 
Hebrews says that twice. And Hebrews 3.1 says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith, who's worthy of more glory than Moses. And Hebrews 12.3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus, my friends. Think deeply and greatly upon Christ. Every week usually, right, we get a message that tells us of our iPhone screen time, how much hours on average we've looked at our screens. And could it be that we're so angry, discontent, anxious, fearful, not able to get over our past because our screen time with our phones are greater than how much we consider Jesus throughout the day, how much we think about and ponder the glory and greatness of our Savior. Consider Christ in all of his glory as Savior and high priest who's willing and able to save. Jesus is not cold, merely tolerating us or saving by force or obligation. And he's not a partial Savior. He's a to the uttermost Savior. In your worst sins, in your lowest moments, consider Jesus. But also understand, and in your evangelizing, in your contemplating the gospel or drawing near to Jesus, remember and know that he's the only way. People can only be saved. You can only be saved to the uttermost when you draw near to God through him. Embrace and enjoy the exclusivity of Jesus. He's sufficient. It's Christ alone. He's our all in all, all we have and yet all we need. But also, By way of application, I want to encourage you, as the song we sang said, come to Jesus. Don't just consider Jesus, but come to Jesus. He came willing and able to save, to help us. He invites us to come. Matthew 11, 28, all who are weary and burdened, come and I will give rest for your souls. In John 6, 37, he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And I'm not only saying come to Jesus to the non-Christians in this room. My blessed believer, daily come to Christ, go to Christ. He meets our needs. He answers our prayers. He keeps us and satisfies our souls. It's through him that we have confident assurance. It's through him we can rest in the gospel and stop thinking we have to add to our salvation or unbiblical thoughts like that. We can glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Go to Jesus. And for every, for every one time that you look in the mirror, think about yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Go to Jesus because he is a savior to the uttermost. Remembering that Hebrews 7.25 calls Christians to confident assurance because Jesus saves completely and prays constantly for his own. We've looked at in the first part of this verse why Jesus came, but now we come to this latter part of verse 25 and answer the question, what is Jesus doing now? So that's our second heading. What is Jesus doing now? Verse 25 continues and finishes with, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is 
present intercession for us is presented here in Scripture as the explicit reason that he is able to save us to the uttermost, to preserve us and to keep us. As our great high priest, Jesus represents us in the presence of God. He speaks on our behalf and is presently praying for us on the basis of his righteous life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection. Think about it like this. In the court of heaven, Christian, you don't represent yourself. You're not like a criminal without a lawyer. Jesus represents you. Jesus brings you before the throne as a child of God. Jesus is your mediator, advocate, and champion, your good shepherd who never fails and allows no one to snatch you out of his hands. And notice in verse 25, it says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always always includes this present moment And it means at all times, continuously and constantly, in your good and fruitful times, for sure. But in your worst times, he always lives to make intercession for us. In your most heartbreaking sins, he always lives to make intercession for us. In the times of relational strife and failure, he always lives to make intercession for us. In the toughest temptations, in your deepest despair, in the darkness of doubt and shame, if you have anxiety attacks, when you feel like the world is closing in on you, he always lives to make intercession for us. And as we're fighting sin, in fighting the the good fight of faith and striving to run the race and to keep the faith. He always lives to intercede for us. He always lives to intercede for you, my brother or sister in Christ. He always lives to do this, to pray and intercede for his sheep. He's the resurrected Lord who died and he's alive forevermore. And this is what he's doing right now for you who come to him and follow him. Jesus is not only for us back then, he's for us right now through his intercessory prayers. This is the loveliness of his heart. This is the consistency and constancy of his care. Years ago, just within the culture, uh, there was a lot of rage around the concept of love languages, and it was also released as a book, Uh, just the importance of knowing how you and your loved ones give and receive love. Uh, the five love languages that were given are words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, gifts, and quality time. All great, nice things. But if you can give me a moment to just spiritualize it all and add one, I never feel more loved than when I know we're here Someone is praying for me to the God of the universe because I know how deeply I need it. J.C. Ryle said, he loves me best who loves me in his prayers. And yet it is unspeakably consoling to know that the son of God, Jesus, right now is praying for me, knowing all my flaws, faults, and failures, but in redeeming, transforming ongoing, inseparable love. This is what he's doing right now. This is the Jesus we serve and celebrate. He who always lives to intercede for his sheep. 
And the reason behind this is that we need it. We wouldn't persevere without it. The perseverance of the saints is primarily because the preservation of our Savior, him holding us fast. This is our good shepherd holding us fast in his intercession, not letting our faith fail even when we fail. One author said, Christ continues to intercede on our behalf in heaven because we continue to fail on earth. He does not forgive us through the cross and then hope we make it the rest of the way. The truth of the cross reassures us of what Christ has done in the past and the truth of Jesus' intercession reassures us of what he's doing in the present. These, and then in Romans 8, 34, 35, God's word reads, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, interceding for us. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These verses, Romans 8, 34 and 35, connect Jesus's inseparable love, not only to his sacrificial death and resurrection, but also to his present intercession. Jesus's inseparable love is actively and presently expressing itself through his intercession, through his intercession and prayers on our behalf. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But based upon a text like this, we could say we walk by faith in this life in the son of God who loves us and is praying for us. And again, these intercessory prayers are on the basis of his righteous life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, who he is and what he's done for us and the fact that now we are united to him as the body is to the head or a bride to the groom. Jesus's intercessory prayers aren't him weighing the scales of our life with how much he's going to pray for us. It's the the basis of these prayers is his glory. Our pastor, John MacArthur, said, whenever we sin, Jesus says to the Father, put that on my account. My sacrifice has already paid for it. John Calvin said, Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness and averts his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. We will never fall away, and the Father will not reject us. It's why in Hebrews 4.16, it says that we can draw near to a throne of grace, where we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's why Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Jesus was dealt with according to our sins. Jesus has paid for our iniquities, and he intercedes on the basis of that finished work. This is our great assurance in the security that we have in Christ. He will hold us fast, but also shows us how seriously Jesus takes our sin. Jesus died for our sins, 
and resurrected and now intercedes for us in the face of our sin, an ongoing battle with sin. Hear me here, the intercession of Christ emboldens your repentance, should embolden your desire to be as holy as a saved sinner can be, should embolden you to fight sin until glory. Because Jesus, our Savior, takes sin very seriously. He dies for it, rises again, and now intercedes in the face of it. You should take your sin seriously too. And if you're not, I encourage you, I exhort you to enter the ring and to fight it. Fight the sin that you may become more like Christ. He's so much better. Following Jesus is infinitely better than a life of sin. And true faith fights sin because it offers nothing for us. And his commandments aren't burdensome. They're true life. But regardless of our Romans 7 struggles, Jesus, our Savior, does not allow and will never allow sin to have the last word in our life as believers. The last word belongs to him because he always lives to intercede for us. And no one knew this, I would say, better than Peter. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Judas, for sure, had a horrible night, right? The worst in the history of the universe. He betrayed Jesus. But Peter had a bad night, too. He flat out denied Jesus three times. After Jesus told him he wasn't praying, just a mess. But then Judas perished. And Peter repented and fruitfully followed Jesus all for the rest of his days until he was martyred, where he didn't deny Jesus again. So what's the difference? It's not that Peter pulled himself up by his bootstraps and figured it out and white-knuckled it until the end. The difference was the same intercessory prayers of Jesus for his own that we've been talking about today for Peter. In Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, this is before everything went down with Peter denying and all that stuff. Jesus says this to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The difference, Jesus prayed for Peter because Peter was one of his own. And that's what Jesus does as our great high priest. He lives to make intercession for us. So even when Peter failed greatly, his faith didn't fail permanently. And likewise, when we who draw near to God through Christ fail, our faith will not fail because the founder and finisher of our faith will not let it happen. He prays for us and there's no prayers like the prayers of Jesus. As one pastor said to to you, O Christian, Jesus is praying for you. He is praying your faith will not fail no matter how far you fail. And your faith has not failed, my brother or sister, in Christ amidst all that has happened in life because Jesus has been praying and interceding for you. Look back to verse 25 and see the last two words that are easy to read over, but they're important. 
says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's plural, right? He's talking about Jesus' church, his bride, believers. And this pronoun for them refers to the same group as those early in the verse, those who draw near to God through Jesus. This intercession is not for everybody. This verse is not telling us of universal salvation. It's only for them who draw near to God by way of Christ alone, because he's the way, the truth, and the life. But for those of us who have come to God through Christ alone, our finishing the good fight, our running the race, our keeping the faith is inseparably linked to the heavenly present intercession of Jesus. For he who has the power to save us has the power to keep us. And a part of that keeping is his intercessory prayers. So having seen what Jesus is doing now, by way of application, I want to encourage you all to treasure this truth of the intercession of Jesus. We don't think about it enough, but it's beautiful, isn't it? Practical ways to do so is just to remember it as you pray, to apply it to your heart and mind and the memory of past sin in your life. When, when, when you think back or something triggers you to think back of times where you failed the Lord in the past, remember that Jesus always lives to intercede for you. When you come to confess sin, remember that Jesus always lives to intercede for you. Or when life is hard, remember that in all the struggles, suffering, and hardship, you are never unprayed for. Because Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Michael Reeves said, there's no place for despair for the Christian as long as Jesus is at the right hand of the throne. Robert Murray McShay said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And that's true of all of us in here who know and follow our Lord Jesus Let this present ongoing intercession of Jesus also drive you to prayer. Let us be like our Savior by just praying to God our Father, but certainly intercessory prayer for others. Believers in Scripture are called to pray for other believers. Let's be like our Savior in doing that because we need each other's prayers. We need to hear each other's prayers. We need to follow Jesus together prayerfully. And lastly, I hope this text just gives you confident assurance to press on. We are, as Hebrews 12 tells us, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that God has set before you, looking to this Jesus the founder and perfecter of your faith, he who originated your faith and and who will ensure that it ends successfully, you standing before him, clothed in his righteousness. So we've seen why Jesus has come and what he's doing now. We've seen that we can have confident assurance because Jesus saves completely and prays constantly for his own. And in the actual high priestly prayer that we have in Scripture in John 17, 
Jesus' last request in John 17, 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him. And he's going to get us there. And he's interceding for us until we get there. Before the throne of God above. And at his right hand, the Lord Jesus is praying for us. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you in the name of Jesus, the one whom we trust, who is the object of our faith, who we long to give the whole of our affections, who we are eternally grateful for and want to treasure all our days. Lord, I thank you for the Savior we have in Jesus. I thank you for his holy love. I thank you for the loveliness of his lordship. I thank you for his compassion and care for his sheep. And I thank you, Father, as we pray to you that we can know from your word that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. We're never unprayed for. Thank you for the riches of Christ Jesus. His name, amen.